Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, we hear from Aaron, a former investment banking associate that worked in equity capital markets at Barclays in New York. Learn how he managed to land a job in investment banking coming from Arizona State and why he made a brave leap after almost three years in the industry. Hear why he moved down to Miami and what he's up to now. Enjoy. Aaron, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Sure. So my name is Aaron Chavez. I'm originally from Phoenix, Arizona. Grew up out there, went to high school, college out there, studied finance, ended up moving into to banking right after graduating in 2016. And now I live and work in Miami after leaving banking, uh, after becoming an associate. Did you always know you were going to be in finance or an investment banker? So it was a pretty quick fit. What I would say is it didn't take me a long time. I entered, uh, I went to Arizona State University. I went to Barrett, their, their honors college over there. And I entered as an econ major, but then very kind of quickly learned more about what the opportunities were. And ASU has a really strong investment banking kind of student led and also faculty supported community, but very much like a strong ecosystem that I very quickly got pulled into because I knew of banking and was curious about it and found out, oh yeah, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And banking seems to be the way for me. So what, sophomore year you discovered that? Yeah, so this was actually freshman year. So I was very fortunate. I moved fast. So I knew about banking in freshman year, but I really started to kind of lean in, discover more, start to do at least a little bit of intro networking, you know, to really, it's one of those things where you first hear investment banking, you're thinking investment management, right? Mm -hmm, And then the next thing you actually go, oh, wait a minute, advisory, capital raising, you know, negotiations, there's more to this pie. So that's a lean in, learn more, do do student-led interviews and whatnot. and really start to, to, to grow in that way. That's awesome. And so you were a freshman year, you kind of knew about it. You're thinking, okay, this is kind of what I want to do. And you said, well, thank goodness. Did you know kind of going into Arizona state that they had that? Is that like, I knew, I knew about it, but I didn't yeah. know what the kind of the meat and potatoes of it was. Right. I knew that it sounded important. I knew I had mentors that had done sales and trading, banking, investment management. So, you know, the AMs and S and T's and all of that, we were all kind of together but I didn't have, you know, that really concrete understanding of what it meant or what really it meant as a career, right? Because obviously getting into banking is no walk in the park, no career really is. Um, But banking especially has so many, you know, check boxes and so many ways to fall by the wayside. It was very much, uh, you know, figure it out early and and get to work. Well, you were 18 years old. I wouldn't expect otherwise. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit, did you have family or people who knew about it? Because you said something about mentors, like, so some people had kind of a little, little exposure earlier on. Absolutely. So I had a few mentors through different programs that I was involved in when I was younger. 
one of the big ones called Be a Leader Foundation. So you just get to meet different people. And it's an Arizona-based nonprofit focused on education for underprivileged youth, you know, broadly. So my my dad and the founder have been best friends since, you know, they were they were born. So it was one of those when the foundation was created, he's like, you're getting in. And I'm like, yeah. all right. So got, got some early exposure there to kind of really just a exposure, not funneling me into one thing or another, but just meet people, talk to them, ask them questions and learn. And finance was something that came up kind of over and over again. So it was something that I had heard enough about that when I got to ASU, I was like, okay, I need to do some exploration, but I'm not going to be an English major. I'm not going to be a physics major. I know I'm in the business school, but it's what am I doing within it, right? Am I leaning towards accounting and finance and more like operations? Or am I getting, you know, uh, getting into the world of consulting and advisory and all these things? And, you know, yeah. we all come for full circle, but now. What about uh, your, what about your family? Like, did, were they in finance or did. Oh, no. Like, I grew up the, 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 the simplest way I summarize it is just a poor Hispanic kid in Arizona. So right. it's like, it's just my mom was forced into early retirement when, when I was like in third or fourth grade. My dad used was in manual labor, like he would set tile and do this stuff. So very kind of humble uh, beginnings in that way. Right. So for me, it was very, I mean, it was, a, it was a reach, right? I made double my family's income, if not triple it, my first job out of college. You yeah, know? So insane. it was, a, it was a, a big leap and, you know, a proud moment for, for mom and dad, for sure. But definitely a, a long run up. So you got there, um, you get to school, you're kind of getting funneled, learning a lot, it sounds like, uh-huh. um, early on. And then, so tell me about these... I've heard about the program there before. I've interviewed other people from Arizona State uh-huh. before. But tell me a little bit about like just your path specifically around like a f- was it freshman summer that you had some sort of do you actually land yeah. anything freshman summer or what was that like? No, so my so I I landed knowledge freshman summer is what I would say mm-hmm. because the ASU for a uh, kind of community there, especially the investment banking group, very collaborative. You get the vault guides, you get shortcuts, you get liars poker, you get PDFs of everything, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, so it very really freshman year was I think kind of exposure. It was just learn everything, see where I'm really pulled because I've been thinking banking this whole time. But if I given trading really a good thought or asset management or anything in between, right? Because there's a hundred things in between. Um, and what does it mean as far as phase two? Because even then I was starting to plan out, like, what do I want from banking? Because I know it's a grind. I know it's a lot of effort. I know that there's huge rewards if you stay in it. There's obviously massive rewards if you do well and then leave it. And then there's everything in the middle, depending on you know what you do with it. So for me, it was kind of learn and grow in that way. And then prepare because I knew that my sophomore year and my junior year, that's when internships, you know, the uh, IBIS, the applications would be coming in. As a freshman, I didn't apply or anything. So I just kind of lived the the first year a little bit more uh, free in that way and just focused on everything from getting to know the community at ASU and just exposure to actually just learning about the industry, reading books, reading the Wall Street Journal, understanding what, you know, the nice actually meant, you know, from a fundamental basis versus just ticker tape that I see. Did you uh, ever hear or use leverage uh, programs like SEO or MLT or anything like that? Yeah. So SEO, I was involved with uh, mm-hmm. sponsors for educational opportunities. Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I got my internship offer before I got into SEO. So I got in and then I connected with SEO and then it kind of was a perfect matchup because I knew the different people. So they yeah. basically invited me into their program, you know, afterward. Right. Okay, great. So you're kind of... Freshman summer, are you working a job? Are you making money or what's going on? You're learning. Freshman, just- year, freshman year summer, I am just kind of doing my thing. I'm yeah. not there, there. There's no real work. It's very much just kind of enjoy the summer because I knew the summers that uh, were coming next. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be pretty intense. Let's talk and about that. I- Let's talk about just going into sophomore year because I know we have limited time. I want to get to like the actual work, but <laughs> I, yeah. I find it's super interesting the way. 
you know, people kind of go through. The I think there's a hundred ways to get there for sure. Yeah. So, so you're coming into sophomore year, you kind of, you now have a pretty good understanding. Are you now set on investment banking or you're saying, Hey, we apply everywhere. Now I'm firmly in investment banking, but I'm very much in the, I'm an ASU guy who's non-target, who doesn't have a 4.0, right? My grades aren't, aren't terrible, but they're not, you know, what you would write on a resume in big, bold, italicized font, right? Three, so four, three, five-ish? What are you talking uh, about? Yeah, no, exa- I was, uh, I think I graduated with a three, six, six, but okay. I think when I was applying for places, I think I had like a three, five, four or something okay. like that. Like okay. very, very much like at the cusp in that way for like the, the, the mid good grades, right? Got it. Yep. Okay. Um, so yes, yeah, tell me about that sophomore year and how did yeah. you end up with a sophomore summer? Yeah. So I got it sophomore summer. So I was very uh, lucky. And basically what I did was I was like, okay, well, the chances of me getting this are going to be so small. So I'm not going to bother anybody. I am just going to go. And I remember I was sitting at the ASU library and I opened up Excel, classic Excel is where bankers always turn. And I was like, okay, I'm going to make a list of every bank I can think of. So I wrote down, there was like 10, 12 banks, right? All the bulge brackets, the Lazards, the Molises, the Barclays, every, every, yeah. you know, all the boutiques, everybody. And I went, okay, now I'm going to Google them and see who has sophomore programs that I might get into. And there were like five programs out there. And then I put the dates they were due and I hit reverse sort. And immediately the first name that popped up was Citigroup. And the second name that popped up was Barclays. And I was like, well, good enough. Let's get started. So then I, I applied. I, I typed up an application. I think I maybe, I think the applications were maybe due like that week or the week after. Like I barely was able to catch it. And it just, because it was incidental. Because my thought was, of course, always, I'm going to push really hard my junior year, and I'm going to get that big offer, and things are going to be good. So sophomore year, I knew it was kind of hit or miss. So I apply, and I got them, both interviews. I got phone screenings. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, that's pretty interesting. Like, I got phone screenings. That doesn't even always happen. Why so do you think like, you okay. got the phone screens? Do you feel I like, think, do you feel yeah, like th- your resume was decent? I think my resume was, I think you could tell by looking at it because I put a lot of time and attention into it. Yeah. That it was a banker resume. Like right. even if the stuff on it wasn't blowing people out of the water, I was still active. I was involved. I was participating at school. I had a few leadership positions, you know, minor at that, but it's freshman year. What can you really do? Right. So checked a lot of boxes. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of those. I did everything I could to turn, you know, molehills into mountains, right. Yeah. Which is all, all that we can do. <laughs> So I, I, I did that. And uh, the, I mean, if I look at my old resume, it's funny. I get contacts today from ASU that go, oh yeah, I know who you are. And I'm like, how? And they go, your resume is the template that we use. <laughs> and I'm like, oh God, you're just looking at this over and over again. How many That's years? amazing. That's amazing. So I, would, I would love to get that resume and share it on this podcast. If you're, if you're no, open to it, it I'll, for the people. I'll dig it up. I'll we can, it up. you know, what I'd love to do. I'd love to link um, your yours. And then we have a Wall Street Oasis uh, MS, we send out for free, the investment banking uh, resume mm-hmm. template. I'd love to look at them side by side and see how similar they are. I mean, uh, it's, I, 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 I think they're pretty they similar. each other. I'm sure. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very sure. So- um, very good. Very good. So you're kind of, uh, you, you land a, sum, a sophomore summer, which is like yeah. half the battle. Exactly. So I got the phone screenings. I did both phone screenings and they all said I passed. Both of them said that I passed. I did them like in the same week or back to back. And then there was a huge snowstorm in, in, um, in New York and city shut down their super day. So the super day didn't happen. And I just got lost in the mess, totally ghosted. And city was off my radar, just gone oh my overnight. And I was like, well, I guess. Barclays, Barclays is. So then I, Barclays goes, oh yeah, we'll still fly out. So I was like, okay. So then I go down there in like December. It was like late December, early January. It was mm-hmm. like a very kind of fringe time. Yeah. It's snowing. It's muggy. I'm sitting at a diner. I don't have my sense of direction because I haven't lived in New York for years. So I don't know which yeah. way is North and South. 
and I go into the, the building, I, I end up interviewing all day long. I had to interview next to a, a woman from Harvard who was like the head of the finance group and like another woman from like Georgetown who had like a 4.0. And I'm like, it's over, it's over, what am I doing? Uh, but I somehow interviewed and I ended up getting the offer and I got my offer, I'll never forget. It was the first day of classes, my second semester, sophomore year. It was, it. It, was yeah. it was very much immediate. So three semesters of no internship and then immediately had it. And I was like, okay, well, if I do this well and I don't you know, mess it up, I will, get, I, I will have the sophomore internship that'll transition to junior junior will transition to full-time. So if I don't mess this up, I'm good with, I've done college. I've checked the box of getting a job in college. Yeah, that's awesome. So you're, I mean, that's a big deal. Were the interviews super technical since you were a sophomore? I assume they weren't that rough. Was it, it was, more just it like It was fit? a hybrid. Yeah. It was they a still, hybrid. They there still expected of, you to know some of the basics. Oh, for sure. I'll never forget this. This is my favorite story of the, yeah, of the whole me. interview process. So I, I, I interviewed with three different people and all three interviews I was late to. And I wasn't late because I chose to be late, but because I went to the first interview and the first interviewer couldn't find the light switch. And that delayed us like three minutes. You could tell he had never been on that floor. So yeah. then we start talking and chatting and he starts asking me questions. And then I look at the thing and it's like five to 10 minutes after he goes, I didn't ask you all the questions. And I'm like, what, what do I do? He goes, just go to the next interview, I guess. And he goes, okay. So I go to the next interview and it was a, a managing director in consumer retail. And she was wearing this big, bright colored scarf. And for me, I just walk in. I was like, oh, I like your scarf. I wasn't even thinking because it's just one of those just natural things. Yeah. The whole conversation was just fashion for like 30 <laughs> minutes. And I'm like, okay. And then I go to the next interview and it was with a really intense like economist. Now he comes in and is like, tell me about the market. Tell me about the New York Stock Exchange. Tell me about your view on what's going on. Tell me about, you know, uh, the flow through of depreciation, right? I got the yeah. very kind of classic questions. Yeah. And then my favorite was the night before I called the head of our student investment banking program. Well, first said, off, before you jump there, how did you do sure. as the, that interview? I did well. I think I did well. There was one question that I didn't know the answer to, mm -hmm. and it's, it's this part right here, but I answered it. I knew in the way they wanted me to answer it. So it was one of those, if you can't answer it right, you can at least answer it not wrong. One of yeah. those. Yeah. So tell so me what it was. It For me, it was deferred tax liability, right? And that's, it's an easy one when you know the definition, right? They weren't asking me to calculate it. They weren't asking me to run through a bunch of things. I didn't have to do, you know, an LBO or anything. But it was, tell me about it. Tell me what you think. And the night before, I had called the head of our student organization. And I said, hey, Brad, by the way, I'm at Barclays. I'm in New York. And I have an interview tomorrow, a super day tomorrow. And he goes, are you kidding me? And I'm like, no. He goes, what, are you, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, I'm like, I don't know, man. He goes, well, let's prep. Because he was so upset. He didn't get a chance to like prep me. That he yeah. like walked out of family dinner. He's like on the phone with me. And I'm flipping through the vault guide, you know, all those questions. And I remember yeah, yeah. one came up and I was like, deferred tax liability. That's interesting. He goes, there's no way they ask you about that. Just skip it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and 12 hours to the hour, I get asked by the most intense person I had met that day. Why don't you walk me through what a deferred tax liability wow. is? And it was the, I don't know, but here's what I can tell you about taxes. Here's what I can tell you about deferred things here. And then here's what I would love to follow up and, you know, let you know more about it. Uh, it's funny. I was looking at this just last night and he got like a little chuckle out of it, but it was one of those, sometimes the test is, can you stay composed? 
Right. Because so much of banking is, you know, being put in the, in the, you know, the melting pot and in the, in the nutcracker. And it's one of those, if you can, if you can sustain it and actually maintain your composure through those challenges, I think you get points in a big, big way. For sure. Yeah. The other advantage, instead of having a vault guide, I feel like you're talking about 2005 right now, but um, the, the other way you can get access is uh, if you have the IB interview course with WSO, you could have looked up Barclay interview questions. Oh, yeah. Prior. I, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I, I, I did read. Oh, I was, because ASU, we love, we, we love WSO. I mean, we were yeah. on your stuff all the time. We read interviews. I'm like, I had there's, so many there's different There's a better way. Ones. There's a oh, better yeah. way. But this was, the, this was the freshman year. They give you a handful of PDFs and an email and say, good luck, kid. Of course. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and, we have ours floating there's so around. Many good, yeah, there's so many good resources out there. Of course, wash there's your the, There's the 400 question guy. There's the, this, the, I know. Yeah, yeah for a question, all, I have that. That's a classic. All, yeah. Um, even some of our old guides are floating around too, but oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah. And I think, um, I don't know if ASU licenses some of our other stuff, but um, definitely a lot of, a lot of the main universities do like Emory sure. and some other ones, but I think um, that's really interesting. So you, you still survive. That's a, that's a good lesson. And like, you realize, oh no, I don't know the answer to this, but you just start reasoning through it and trying yeah. to keep your cool. Um I think the big thing for those interviews are you have to expect you're going to get asked something you don't know because right. chances are you will, but the stuff that you should know, the stuff that you can know, know it like down pat and then let your personality come through. I know somebody and I won't say their name because of course out of respect, but I know they went through an interview and the feedback that they got was you just felt like a robot, right? It felt like you were spitting out everything properly, but there was no character. There was no, we weren't passing the lunch test which is right. what I want to actually sit and have lunch with you. And that, you know, can turn people off in a big way. So I think, you know, you want to make sure you're prepared, of course, as much as you can, but you also want to have some personality. And as silly as it is, complimenting someone's scarf, not because I had to, but because I was like, oh, that's genuinely cool. And it built an immediate connection and made the interview, you know, softer in that way. Yeah, yeah. The airport test, the lunch test, whatever you want to call it. It's important. Oh, yeah. yeah, just getting that, um, getting the sense of like, hey, it actually be fun to sit around this person and not, you know, for yeah. a few hours. And you know, you're going to be with them at two in the morning at least yeah. once. So at, at some point you want to make sure, all right, they're all right. So tell me a little bit about, um, so you ended up getting the offer right away. And then tell me, now that we've gone through that, tell me about kind of leading up into that sophomore summer. Were you nervous? Um, did you feel like confident that you were going to be able to survive? What, what was, what was the anticipation? And then tell me about what, what it was actually like going through it, especially that first week. Yeah. The anticipation for me was because I had done so much preparation, I wasn't really nervous. I was more excited because I knew I was going to get training. I knew I was going to be expected to drink through a fire hose. And it's more, you know, it's anxiety. It's, you know, nervousness about the action, but the action still stays the same. So in that way, I think I walked in feeling, you know, as confident as you can. For me, it was more, I wasn't thinking about competing with the other, you know, students and other interns. It was more, I just need to make sure that I show them that I really want this, that I'm not here asking to leave as soon as I can, that I'm also not sitting here till four in the morning when nobody asked me to, right? It's right. finding the balance. But for me, it was very much, can I go in with the right mentality to not come off as, you know, the try hard sophomore intern, which of course, nobody's a huge fan of, but also someone who, you know, really cares and wants to do a good job. I mean, they're giving me an opportunity. They're paying me crazy money. And no matter what, this internship looks great, even if I was terrible at it. So the least I can do is, you know, give it my best effort. Yeah. Tell me about the pay. Was it, what did they, I can't even remember. Is it like a stipend it, it was, or something? It was prorated off of the base salary. And I think the base salary was like 70K or 60K. 70. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Back then. So okay, it, was a pro, it was just, it was just very much like a prorated from, from for a college kid. You're making a lot of money. Yeah. Did oh yeah. I, I think I, I can't away. remember. Does, does Barclays pay overtime? 
Uh, no, I don't think they paid. They did not pay overtime, but it was nice because my sophomore year, I interned in a group uh, that was the natural resources group. Mm-hmm. Very nice group. One of the top groups at Barclays. They're, you know, a top performer on the street, but their culture is actually really good. So you're, it wasn't as much of a sweatshop as so many other places obviously can unfortunately be. So yeah. if I would have had to take in an overtime, I probably would have not made as much money. So I'm actually quite pleased with the flat. <laughs> That's great. And so you were working, what would you say, like 70-ish, 80? I think my 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 sophomore year, genuinely, I think I was working about 60 to 70. Not my bad. junior, my junior year, I was working 70 to 90. Yeah. And and that was equity capital markets, which we can talk about, but how funny, how different the, the scenarios can be. Depends very different totally. group, very different group, totally. so different culture. So yeah, let's talk about so you're kind of going into it seemed, it sounded like you really like the natural not not natural resources group. So why jump to a different group, just get different exposure, different part of the bank? Was that the thought process or was it something where they were like, hey, we want you over here? Yeah. I mean, it was all kind of a a good experience, but I knew I wanted both sides of the fence because Mm -hmm. Barclays offered it. You know, you could do one and the other. You could do ECM and then go natural resources. You could go natural resources and go ECM. So I wanted to try out different things. Ended up getting some great uh, exposure in, in both groups. And from there, it was one of those, okay, now that I've seen markets play and I know what it's like to basically sit on half a trading desk and I've seen what it's like to, you know, work and grind and think through valuations all day. Now I can actually make a decision for full-time where I want to be. Cause I know wherever I'm going to be, I'm going to be there day in and day out. And I'm going to be there for at least, you know, two to four years minimum, right. As I graduate from, you know, through an analyst rotation or through an associate rotation. And when you were coming up at the end of your sophomore year, did you feel like um, it was, like the offer for junior summer was pretty much in the bag. Like you felt good about it kind of midway. They probably give you a review and say, just keep doing what you're doing. I I did have a a great sophomore year review where I walk into the room and it was like a pretty senior MD that a lot of people were, he was a director at the time, became the head of the group later, uh, but he was very intense. And it was a woman and there was a woman from HR and I go in and I sit down and he looks at me totally dead face. And he goes, so to begin, you're doing terribly. And he just paused. And I was like, and I was sitting there and I, in my head, it was like a very quick conversation. It was like, well, if I'm going to lose, I'm going to go down in style. So I just looked at him and I was like, go on. (laughs) And he immediately started laughing. And the woman from HR was like, you're going to give one of them a heart attack. Cause I had seen like three people walk out just sweating, just sweating. Cause I guarantee he'd done that to them, but I didn't, I didn't break. And luckily he was like, oh no, you're doing great. Like your team likes you. They want you to do more of this or do a little bit of that, or, Hey, keep your eyes out for, you know, more attention to detail when you're doing even the menial tasks, right? Yeah. Because sometimes it's so easy to, to, to get an ego, even when you don't deserve it, right? You're no, you're better than no task, right? You do not have the job yet. You do all the tasks. Right. And I think, and I think for me, it was less an arrogance thing, more of an attention to detail thing, making yeah. sure, you know, I could see forest and trees, yeah. but then I, 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 sur- I survived the joke and the, the, and the, that's the, scary, man. That's yeah, scary. Feedback. Oh, it was, it was hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious. Um, and then, and then I got the offer and then he, he was, he basically, it was a, you're doing good. Don't mess it up. One of those. Okay. And then, so you get the offer to come back, any thought of potentially going to a different bank or, you know, leveraging it, or they wanted you to take I, it right I, away. I looked at it. I looked at it, but I had so many friends at other banks and it's a, it's a a controversial statement, but sometimes it's nice being near the top and not at the top Mm -hmm. because I've done a lot of deals with Goldman. I've done a lot of deals with BAML and JP Morgan and all these different people and all my friends that work at those banks. And when you're constantly fighting for number one and two, what you end up chewing through are your people, unfortunately. 
So when you're in the top three, four or five, depending on where you're at, you're still working really hard. You're still doing a lot, but you actually can kind of think a little bit more and focus more on client relationship versus just how do we beat that guy in the room? And of course, there is a lot of that energy that, that comes along with it with, you know, some, some big fancy deals. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about just, uh, I guess you mentioned a little bit of the culture difference, equity capital markets, the difference between that. And so what were you doing specifically for them? What did you get to do over the summer? And then specifically, why go there yeah. um, full time? Where, where coverage was more of a thought and skill and knowledge play, where it's, how do I think about this problem? How can I grind out these pitch decks? How can I understand this valuation? Equity was much more of a process and execution and narrative and communication play, where it's, how do we balance what our traders are doing with the syndicate? How do we think about an IPO with this client? How do we manage a relationship where coverage would like them to do a deal because it helps them with something later, but the market wouldn't be receptive to a deal? So how do we balance these things? There was a lot of walking the fence and not because we didn't have an opinion, but because our kind of job was to walk the fence in that way. And I thought that really, really interested in me because of course, equity is what's left when everything's left over, right? So debt has a great play. Equity is all narrative. It's what are we doing? Where are we growing? What's happening? And that play now, especially now at my current work is exactly what I needed, but it was something that I knew I liked in the beginning. Also the trader environment because Barclays, their equity capital markets group sits on the banking side, but on a trading floor. So our floor is private, but the energy, there's footballs, there's lacrosse balls, there's hockey sticks flying around, you know, there's bottles of whiskey everywhere with deal things all over it. (laughs) And your MD's desk is 15 feet from you. Yeah. So I've gotten I used to get interrupted from client calls to go uh, to order sandwiches from like a fancy place down the block. And it's like, all right, you know, what? this culture, it's wild and energetic, but dead smart and very focused when they need to be. And that I can kind of tool with. It's it's an ADD It's a person with ADD's best friend, I suppose. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, the, the open uh, the open space, open structure of the offices can be tough, right? To get some work done sometimes. Um, but. Very intense. But you know what? I'll tell you a little story that shows how you can adjust. Sure. There was a group that sat across from me and they did convertibles, right? It's mm-hmm. convertible equity. Super smart, super intense. You know, all, all of them like math, you can just, just intense, intense people. And I see one of their like lead analysts just type, type, typing away, just typing. And one of their MDs used to patrol with a lacrosse stick or uh, with a, uh, uh, um, oh God, what is it? Like in India where they play, where you swing, it's like a baseball, cricket. you know, cricket. cricket with a cricket bat yeah, yeah. on his shoulder. And he just screams four. And when he screams four, the analyst without looking ducks his head and the bat goes right above it, right where the head was because he just knew he could sense it. And then as soon as the bat went over, head popped up, continue typing. And I'm like, <laughs> that is a team and that is my sign to go home and then i left yeah. <laughs> i love it i love it. that's great so tell me a little bit about just how what you know going from the internship then to full-time so like i assume senior year it's great because you have the offer in hand it's a party if you're, for the, for if you're senior. feeling good you, you, get, you get some energy you get to feel confident going out there you start looking at places and figuring yeah. out who you're going to live with and figuring out what the the summer in the city is going to unlock because that fr- that first summer is where people are the most kind of, it's like the first day of school, right? Yeah. Where you have every reason to talk to everybody. 
Mm-hmm. And the city is, you can feel it, especially after you've been there for a few years, mm-hmm. you can feel the interns. Yeah. You can see the suits, <laughs> you can see the pods, but guess what? We laugh because we're on the outside, but that yeah. was us two years ago, three years ago. And they're having a blast. They're checking out all these places. And it's like that energy. It's a, it's a really fun time. It's a, yeah. it's a really, some of my favorite memories are from just the social times that you get, you know, you, of course the grind is fun. Sometimes the grind is hard sometimes else. But plenty of times it's just being with a bunch of friends doing some wild, wild stuff in, in Manhattan. So it never hurts. Uh, especially during training. Um, but yeah. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> so you get there, uh, you kind of start full time, you move to the city. Where do you live? So I basically, I, I lived in four places in three years. I just oh hated gosh. being comfortable, apparently. So I lived near Bloomingdale's on the east side my first year. Uh-huh. Then I ended up moving into Chelsea. I lived on 22nd and 8th then 42nd and 10th. So moved right, right into Times Square, basically. Yeah. And then I lived on 54th and 11th. So I just hugged the west side of Manhattan all the way interesting, up. Interesting. But it's but, but my, my apartment's got a little bit nicer and I got a little bit more room every time. Yeah. So it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Very cool. And so um, tell me about the two years, almost three years there and yeah. kind of your progression and what the thought process was of kind of jumping when you did to do your own thing. It sounds like it looks like your own thing, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. And because I think that's interesting to a lot of people, you know, you know, how did you do it so soon? And what were the thought processes around setting that up and the, the risks associated with it and all that? But let's start a little bit more about, and uh, we got about 15 minutes, talk a little bit about more just the progression over the two years or three years rather. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. The progression over the three years was very much, you know, the first six to 12 months are the most fire hose that the fire hose is, right? After that, it cranks down in a big way, depending on what you want to do. Some people start expanding. I know people that would do equity capital markets and debt capital markets. They would do hybrid deals. like They would be all over, so their plate was constantly full. I know other people that only did certain types of deals and were only interested in kind of doing the minimum, and they got to get by a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. For me, it was I wanted exposure. I wanted to, as silly as it sounds, I wanted to be in the room. Because Mm -hmm. if I'm in the room, I get to hear how smart people think and what they talk about and what jokes they make. You know what I mean? What do they use to engage people, especially at this level in this weird, different, mega large building with all this money? What do they talk about and what's that world look like? So for me, I, I was very busy, but it's because I wanted to be and I wanted to kind of stay engaged as much as I could and get that exposure. Mm-hmm. So it was learning how to communicate, learning how to manage processes. I think the biggest thing that banking taught me um, in a, in a good and bad way, but I think it's paid dividends is self-sufficiency. I guarantee if you go to Barclays now, somebody there is teaching the interns my rules, which is first, did you read it? Did you really read what it was? Two, did you Google it? Three, did you check for precedence? If you've done those three, you can ask me any question at any time, any day. If you haven't done those intern, you got to go back. So it's like, but like those things you learn because you go through them the hard way. And I think that was really what those three years were, was building that, you know, um, professional backbone, building that ability to communicate with clients where one day I'm doing fine and hanging out. And the next day, my, my MD is like, hey, we, we, uh, the CEO needs a quick market update and I'm on another call. So you need to pick it up and don't mess it up. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. So I pick up the phone and this CEO whose business does a hundred million in revenue is talking to me. Right. And I have to relationship manage. And when there's a, and then when the call ends, my MD goes, what's our follow-up? Do we owe him anything? You got to walk me through it. I wasn't on the call. I trust you. You got to, you got to hook me up here. 
So that was so much stronger in equity capital markets because the teams are smaller. My team was four people at one point. Right. It grew to like six or seven. And then my managing director ended up taking over the tech team as well. So we had like an eight person team. Right. But with e that's small compared to coverage groups where there could be 15 analysts, right? If you're an industrial totally. somewhere. Totally. So that self-sufficiency, that kind of market read, that ability to kind of learn, because also my group, we were the fintech or we were the, the, the FIG group. So we covered, you know, banks, insurance companies, mortgage REITs, financial institutions, but we also covered SPACs and SPACs are multi-industry. And then mm -hmm. when my MD took over tech, we started covering tech and startups more. So I started seeing so many industries, so many different types of deals, so many different personalities, you know what I mean? Yeah. Go through the bank, through the industry. That is where I think I started to kind of get the hints, whether it was conscious or not, like, oh, this advisory, this kind of negotiating, this building community and doing things with it in a very material way seems to interest me. Like I, can, I knew that in the back of my head, but I didn't really know what to do with it. And then, you know, the three years passed and I went, okay, I have a choice. I'm either going to stay in banking and go to be an MD and I, I could see myself doing it and doing well, hopefully, or I have to leave soon because if I leave late, then I'm just, you know, you're an old infant, right? And nobody wants that. And it's not to say you can't leave later at any point because every rank has its own kind of viable exits, depending on what, you, what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But I knew if I wanted to leave early and do private equity or hedge funds or something, it had to be soon or if I wanted to leave early and do something myself, now was going to be like the first chance. Because at 19, maybe too hard. You know, first year out of banking, maybe too hard. But now I'm an associate. I've got some, you know, credibility. I've been promoted. So it's not like I was just existing there for two years. Right. Well, what if I try now? What if I like venture forth and, and give it a go? So I had that thought. Um, I was also just kind of gradually becoming more unsatisfied with the bank. And then in April or May of 2019, I quit. And I walked out one day, took the classic photo that everybody takes, posted it to, you know, Instagram and a new, a new world began. But tell me, so let's talk about that. Was it, was it planned in advance for a long time beforehand? Like, had you thought of? It was um, building, but I didn't know of the, the business that I wanted to build in advance of quitting. I quit very much with a figure it out mentality. And so tell me about like in your second year, because it seems like you were there for almost three years. Yeah. You had gone the internal promote. Did you ever go through the private equity recruiting process, hedge fund process? Do you ever start dabbling there to try to figure it out or what was the... So I did some kind of more independent studies. I read stuff on Wall Street Oasis. I did some interviews with friends that had gotten banking offers or uh, private equity offers, you know, very early, like in their first or second year. Yeah. So it was one of those. I had started to have the conversations. But the more I learned and the more I experienced it and the more I saw, I, I, got, I had a friend of mine who did very well. He actually got into HIG, right? Yep. Great firm, very intense, um, but he grinded. Like he earned every single penny that he's ever made. And I was like, okay, this is a really smart guy and he's working like hell. You know what I mean? If I want this, I can't just half want it. You got to really want it and be willing to work for it. And do I really want it? And the truth was I didn't. I knew yeah. the truth was that I didn't. The money may have been good. It may have looked sexy on the LinkedIn or the resume, but it wasn't for me. And I knew that there was something else that I wanted to try, regardless of what it was. And I would regret not trying more than I would regret, you know, following just this linear path, you know, just because it's there. Sure. You kind of had an entrepreneurial bug that you said, yeah. you're like, I know I need to do something on my own. It was, it was it the realization that I like collaborating with people, but I don't like a hierarchy. So it's some people are entrepreneurs because they want to be rich and famous. 
Some people are entrepreneurs because they have a great idea. And some people are entrepreneurs because they have no other choice. Mm-hmm. And I fell into that bucket. Where Tell was, me about I, like, but like, but you, you're kind of, you're there for two, over two years. You're surviving. You're an associate. Theoretically, you're doing well. That week leading up to when you're quitting, like when did, when was the decision made versus when you went in and said, Hey, I'm done. The decision, I think, I think in my head, it was done November of the year before, but right. I think the actual week that I did it, it was much more of a formality. Like it's kind of the, the easiest example that I can think of is you ever get broken up by a girl six months before she actually dumps you that, you know what I mean? But, but intentionally in my head, I was like, yeah. Oh, I remember I was at Thanksgiving with a buddy of mine mm-hmm. and Thanksgiving is not big in my family. So I spend it with friends on the East coast all the time. They'd be like, mm-hmm. Hey, come down for three days, eat with my family, you know, lay on the couch. And I'm like, all right, I can do that. Yeah. So I go meet up with a buddy of mine and we're chatting and he goes, what do you think you want to do? And I just said, I just think we work way too hard and we're way too capable to continue doing what we're doing right now, given how we feel about it. And it's like, what we're doing is good. We've liked it, but we don't love it. You know, and that's an important distinction. You know what I mean? So for me, it was, okay, I've verified in my head that this isn't something that I want for the rest of my life. So now, now that I've kind of flipped that switch, now it's a decision. Do I do PE? Do I do hedge funds? Do I start my own thing? So the decision, you know, to get out was, I think, very early, but the modality didn't become clear until after I had actually already moved to Miami, Florida. And really yeah, started. So why Miami? Here. Why Miami? Um, I am what I'd call strategically impulsive, which means I am impulsive, but hopefully pretty good. I was on the phone with a buddy of mine, and my lease was running out in New York, and I was telling him, I was like, "Yeah, you know, I have some ideas on some business stuff that I want to do. I think it would either work in like a New York or a Phoenix or like a Miami or these different places." And he lives in Miami, and he goes, "You know, I really think you'd like Miami." And I go, "Oh yeah?" He goes. Yeah, looks like you're kind of spot. And I was like, all right, deal. And then I moved there. And you moved and there. I was, and I was there like 45 days later. Wow. Okay. So now let's talk about your, your businesses, what you've launched, what's going on there. I see one, Dinerazo. Is that how you say yeah. it? Um, with, uh, so you're co founder there. You have a, you're also a managing partner at a firm called Argent Strategies, uh-huh. correct? And your CFO at a company called Hatch. Yeah. So, so so tell me about all these and like when they started and what's the stage of each of them and are they funded? Are they bootstrapped? And I know we only have five minutes, but whatever you want to highlight. No, you're good. We we got, we got another like 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so for this, I, when I left banking, I started dabbled with Argent. Argent was the name, but I didn't really know what it was going to become. So I just tried a couple of different things. Did like a lot of informational interviews. I did some digital marketing stuff for a while. Like it was a whole exposure. Mm-hmm. But I ended up moving down to Miami. I had kind of a fresh start and I knew I had these skills, right? You know, sounding like Liam Neeson, but it's like, I knew I knew finance. I knew I knew strategy. I knew I knew how to communicate. I knew that I was pretty um, um, like good at building relationships and kind of business development broadly. I had been like a connector type all through college where oh, I have a friend or I know somebody or I met this guy, like building kind of that skill of how do you build, you know, connection and community. And so I went down to Miami and I knew about startups because I had covered them in banking and I had some exposure and I knew about technology because I sat next to the tech group and I liked kind of all of that stuff. So I said, okay, I don't know a single person in Miami. I'm going to go to every single networking event that's around tech and startups and entrepreneurship. And I'm going to learn and see what the community is really like. And then I walked into, and there's my, my, the firm actually came together in one moment. 
uh, I was at my second event and I was watching a pitch competition. And it was one of those like little tiny pitch competitions where there's no screen even. It's just people walking up and saying something and like the mic is fuzzy. And, I, and a guy walks up and goes, oh, da, 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 this is my name. This is what I do. And I went, if that guy fails, he's going to be worth billions. Why isn't anybody asking any questions? Like it was one of those, like, am I in the wrong room? And then the, the pitch pitches ended after, you know, a few. And I look over and he's eating a piece of pizza by himself. And I walk up and I go, hey, man, like, I just really like your pitch. I'd love to stay in touch. And he goes, oh, I really appreciate it. And then about 12 months later, he raised a round. Um, and then he, ra- he broke like three or four records on Kickstarter um, and raised millions of dollars. And now his pro- he's going to be a, a giant. Right. And I remember I was in that pitch room and I heard him pitch and I sent a long text to my, my buddy at the time. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. These startups need help. They need advice. There's no one that's an advocate for them in this room. Why can't I? I know the finance and the business and the strategy and the pitch decks. I've been doing that stuff for years. Yep. I'm going to help these startups go from little tiny cute companies to lean mean machines that can mm-hmm. actually compete. And when they have to go negotiate with the financiers and the investment bankers, they're going to have one on their side. And yeah. I'm going to be able to advocate for them in a way that nobody else can. So I, I said, fine, I'm going to do, how do you get How do you get paid? Because they have no cash flow. <laughs> exactly. You get paid an so equity, they, they, a so, tiny bit of equity. Yeah, you, so, how are you doing that? And, and are they, it depends on the startup because the truth is yeah. most startups are not started with no money. You know what I mean? They don't have tons of money. They can't be paying yeah. you 30 and 40 and $50,000 retainers. Right. And, and obviously depends on where they are. So I started focusing on startups pre-revenue to series A. So kind of the early stages of startups, but mm-hmm. you could still be making some good money doing them. And I basically just started networking with a little bit of everybody to kind of see where my best fit was, but it ended up kind of funneling itself to business planning, financial strategy. So all the projections and budgets and cap tables and everything and capital raising. So everything from documentation to process, to outreach, to investor relations, all that kind of good stuff. That makes sense. Ended up meeting all of these different founders and started just providing value. It's, you know, part of our company motto Mm -hmm. uh, is give first. Always yep. give first. So we started just building in the community, building decks, talking to people, giving advice, offering to host sessions, offering to be a mentor. And slowly but surely, you know, our name, our people, you know, it was first, it was just me out there, you know, riding a scooter in the Miami heat, going from place to place. <laughs> and then slowly but surely, I actually ended up hiring somebody from ASU. We hired our second guy last week. So That's it's great. like the, the company has been, been growing and slowly has, you know, taken lift. This is great. So this is this is your kind of consulting business, your your correct advisory firm, Argent. Yes. And so your the goal here is just to build this out eventually to like a into what what's the what's the vision a fifty yeah, so, person hundred person so advisor there's a, shop. A, yeah, there's a couple different things. So in addition to the consulting, it's like consulting is a great start because one, it's kind of where you start, but also clients aren't just clients; they're people, right? They're not like a bank where it's just a fee and they go away. Sometimes clients have ideas or new deals, or because I'm a banker, all the investors are more likely to talk to me because they're like, oh, finally, somebody that actually can speak multiples. All right, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I want. This is this. So I became kind of this weird pin in the community where all the startups that I knew they didn't know what they were talking about. I had, you know, my whole family's built on teachers and I had, I helped build the the training program at Barclays for all their interns. So for, so for me, it was education was my kind of backbone. So oh, we like, should I'm talk gonna... about uh, corporate training because we need more hey, great instructors. Absolutely. Like, yeah. we, we can do all <laughs> kinds of stuff. Um, 
So it's very much a, I started to educate and establish these people while also building the investor relationships and slowly piece them together. Well, as that started happening, clients would come to me. First, it was a client like Hatch, where I ended up becoming their CFO. That company is in a very interesting spot and is already um, getting some early M&A discussions. Let me put it like that. I can't really say too much more, but it's like that company is doing really well. And I saw it pre-product and in 12 months, they're blowing up. And I guarantee if that thing goes the way that I want it to, it will be a front page story sometime, someplace. That's great. Um, it's exciting. Dina Dasso is a, a company that I co-founded with a former client who approached me with this idea of, and something I very closely relate to, Hispanics don't understand financial literacy. And not just because, not because they're dumb, but because there's no materials tailored for them, whether they be first generation, second generation, a new immigrant, whatever. And they're a big portion of the, the US population. Why mm -hmm. don't we cater something for them that's not just trying to sell them something, but they can educate in a big way? So we came together, we built this company called Dinadaso, which provides financial literacy as its backbone, you know, education and investment advice. And then on the other side, we offer products and solutions, whether they want to invest capital with us and put money in the New York Stock Exchange, whether they want to engage with our products and services. It's a very kind of, you can go here and find good education and resources and it's curated like a, products. a nerd wallet for the exactly. population? Yeah, think, for... think Credit Karma, nerd wallet. But imagine if they offered more of an education basis as well, because a lot of times you go to like a nerd wallet because you want to see the best credit card. Well, if you're from Mexico moving here, you don't really understand how the U.S. credit system works and yep. where you get you, where do you file for these things and what does it count for? So we start from block one. Why really do you even want credit? Exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? What, is, what does a lease actually mean? And on all of these different things. So to that extent, it's really, it's a good chance, you know, to start from square one and, and build up from there. How's that been? I mean, it's only been super young still. So yeah, we're actually going, we've been in development because we, we've been in development most of this time, forming relationships, getting the back end built out, you know, to integrate all this technology. So that should actually be going live in the next couple of weeks, probably by the end of October. Awesome. Well, what's like the format going to be? Is it like, is there like, what are the sections of the site? So I can visualize like an educational thing, but is it going to be like, broken down by like investing and like mm -hmm. stock market stuff versus credit and, you know, budgeting and stuff like that. Like, how should I think of it? Yeah. Yeah. So there's kind of like three pillars. There's the education, which splits into topical. Like if you want, I want to learn about interest rates or debt or loan. And then we're creating structured content. So it's like, Hey, I want to learn about banking broadly. Okay. Start with lesson one. Here's lesson two. Here's a quiz. Here's this, cool. here's that. So we're, we're doing like online yeah. education. Yeah. Exactly. In Spanish, so obviously. Yeah. hundred percent. So yeah. we're doing a hybrid there. We have the investment arm where you can come with us and we have a partner that's, we're a robo advisor, a registered robo advisor as well. So we can take money and use our quant strategy to actually invest. So people can start to, you know, build some income and build some kind of asset base early. And then the third layer is kind of the bundle of products and services. So everything from insurance to, to credit, to connections to banks, to loans. We want to make sure that we have a curated, you know, safe list of resources that you can engage with and learn with when appropriate. Right. No, sounds exciting, man. That's uh, you gotta have to keep me up to date. Let me know how everything's going. It's exciting oh, yeah. to see there, everything. There's so much stuff going on. We actually partner with, uh, we're hired to advise a venture studio as well. And that has 10 companies and 10 technologies in it. So that's something that, you know, is a whole nother thing. So Argent is, uh, it's uh, a true startup in the sense that it started from literally nothing. And uh, really in like the last, I would say six to 12 months, we've started to hit the point where I, I'm, I'm kind of not done rowing, 
but now I'm more like steering where I yeah. today have gotten probably 45 emails, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, oh, this is what inbound feels like. Yeah, and this yeah. is what, you know, this stage. And it's great because I am bringing my clients there and now so too have, am I getting there? So it's a great, you know, it's, it's, awesome. a, it's, a, it's a good feeling. That's awesome. Yeah, any final words of wisdom before we call the pod? Yeah, I think I would say to the, you know, all the students and all the people preparing for banking, the, the two things that I always think about is one, go in with kind of eyes wide open and an honest intention to learn and do everything, thinking that you're better than any task won't get you anywhere. Um, it's something that it, you'll, you'll get a lot of points by being willing to do the work and have a good attitude about it. And the other thing I think is while you're there, think about what you want to do. And if you want to stay in banking and you want to or switch groups or go to PE or go to hedge funds, any decision is fine, but don't get, don't just go with the flow because it's the flow, go with the flow because that's the direction you want to go. And whether it's venture out into the world and try something new like me or go pre hedge funds or become a managing director, they're all equally valid. I just hope, you know, these students do kind of what I did at least and think for themselves and feel satisfied with the choices that they made. That's great. Can you give me any sort of idea you were making good money, I'm sure, as an associate. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm full transparency on all that stuff. I don't care. So you were making probably, you know, I think, I think it was like 125, something like that. Base, but then, but then your yeah, bonus. Yeah, but then, but then bonus would, I didn't get the full bonus because I left early after I got promoted, but it would have been at least another probably 60 to 90K. Yeah, so you're, two, you're in the 200s. Sure. Obviously, now you're in a lower cost of living area, but do you feel like, you know, you're going to get back there, you know, soon? You think you're... You're on the road there because yeah. obviously it's it's very hard to build up to that as your own startup, right? So I just, oh, I'd like to hear what your thought is. Like, how long is it going to take to get for you to get there? What's your yeah. thought? Yeah, yeah. Right now I'm making about 50k, but it's because I'm pumping the rest of it into the business. You know what I mean? It's one yeah, of yeah. those. I'd rather live cheap now and you know be rich later. That's definitely the way to do it. But the other thing is because I'm a startup and because I have a lot of equity positions. For me, there's a, a, a non-zero possibility that I go from zero to five years from now worth you know, 10, 20 million if things close out the way that I want. But in the meantime, constantly building you know, the recurring revenue, establishing new clients, and you know, just building out the firm. I, should, I, I imagine I'm back to banking salary within the next 12 to 18 months. That's awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for sharing your story. It's different, and I love it. We love different here. So Absolutely. Uh, thanks for because it opens people's eyes. and. Hopefully uh, some of the listeners really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Pleasure. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.